Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gad Saad, another fantastic guest today. I have for you Professor Amy Wax from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. How are you doing, Amy? Okay. Uh, well, I wanted to first, uh, you know, give some details about your educational background because it is quite unique. Uh, you seem to have collected degrees from every possible uh, Ivy yes. school. Uh, so you began with a, I'm going off memory here, but I've got my notes in case I draw a blank. You began with a bachelor's degree in uh, biophysics and biochemistry at Yale. Then you went on to, um, to do a, I guess, a scholarship at uh, Oxford, where you studied the three Ps, philosophy, physiology, and psychology. And then you, uh, then you went and did an MD degree at Harvard, so another Ivy League school. Then you got a residency in neurology at my alma mater, or at least the hospital associated with the Cornell University. And then you decided, I'm gonna practice neurology. Then you left neurology and then got a law degree at Columbia University. Uh, so my first question would be, what caused you to leave neurology and go into the law? Well, I probably should have left earlier. I think when I, um, I was a science major in college and I love science. Uh, and as a, I don't know if you know Yuval Levin, but he said to me once, uh, once a nice Jewish girl tells her parents she's going to be a doctor, you can't take it back. Uh, so I decided to go to medical school and I realized that I was radically temperamentally unsuited to the practice of medicine, but it took me about eight years to really just act on that um, and finally leave medicine. And it was, it was nothing sort of elevated or complicated. It was really very particular to me. I just realized fairly gradually, although gradually and then all of a sudden, uh, that I didn't enjoy dealing with sick people. I really was something of a loner and an introvert. I was uh, intellectual in a way that law appealed to. It was just all these little things. And I drifted away from medicine. And then I got a good clerkship. I got a great job at the Justice Department in the Reagan and Bush administrations in something called the Solicitor General's Office, which is the best job you could possibly have representing the United States before the Supreme Court. So there was really very little motivation for me to go back to medicine. Um, my husband is a professor of medicine at Penn, and so I, and an oncologist, I live vicariously, I guess you could say through him. Uh, but my experience, um, I think, has really helped me advise young people because I do meet young people who can't decide whether to go in the law direction or the medicine direction. And I always tell them, this is not a decision you make based on these abstract highfalutin uh, ideas about what's worthwhile and what isn't. It's a decision you make that comes from knowing yourself. Know thyself, the hardest right. thing you could possibly do. Well, you know, I, I mean, the reason why I, I thought it was interesting to ask you the question, other than, you know, it's an interesting pivot, it's because in my next book, I have a chapter where I talk about the psychology of regret. And basically, the psychology of regret involves two types of regrets, regret due to action and regret due to inaction. And most, yeah. most people experience the greatest form of regret from their inactions. You know, I, I went and I became a chartered accountant because my dad was a chartered accountant, but I always wanted to be a painter. And now I'm 65. I regret so much that I didn't pursue my passion. 
So in a sense, you had the courage to decide, I'm ready to pivot, which many people don't have that courage, right? Yeah, I mean, it was hardly, you know, super courageous to go into a very established kind of conventional uh, profession. I wasn't taking a huge risk. But you're but leaving many years of sunk costs. I did. Yeah, sunk costs, right. Well, I hadn't even learned sort of how how utterly awful the sunk cost fallacy is yet. And yet I left the sunk cost. And it, there were costs to that. I did, I think puzzle my parents, maybe even disappoint them, and I was a pretty dutiful daughter. Um, it meant that I started my law career pretty late. Uh, I think I have no regrets about the course that I took, but the one thing I do regret is that I had children, I started having children very late. Now, luckily, I was able to have three, so I feel very fortunate in that, as many women who started at you know 38, as I did, were, are not able to. But if I had to do over again, I would have had children much younger. You know, I actually share that regret because my wife and I have been uh, together for 22 plus years. And by, this, by choice, we decided to only have our first child. We have two children uh, 13 years ago. And in retrospect, I would have liked these two children to be numbers three and four rather than number one and two. Right. Uh, and I guess the second parental regret that I, that I have which you probably don't, unless you're a multilingual person, is that between my wife and I, we speak five languages, and yet my our children only speak French and English. So the Arabic is lost, the Hebrew is lost, and the Armenian is lost. Oh. And I deeply regret that. Well, at least they don't barely speak one, which is sometimes <laughs> my children. Uh, but anyway, no, that would that's a joke at their expense. Uh, but what's curious is. Um, the demographic trends, which are declining birth rates, precipitously declining, and especially among the hyper-educated women that I teach and deal with, um, are to me very disconcerting and puzzling. I, I try to tell my students, you know, very few women can get to the end of their life childless without regret. I mean, that's an old-fashioned, hoary way of thinking about things, I know. Okay, we just added another line of controversy Topic. from a podcast. Thank you, Amy. Uh, but they just don't seem to affect that insight because, well, because radical feminism, right, has gotten to their brain. It's your brain on radical feminism. Uh, and pathogens right here in this book. Yeah, <laughs> trying to counter that is not easy right. at all. Um, so that's part of what's going on today. Okay, let's, uh, before we get into some of the, the, the stuff that's triggered the ire against you and so on, uh, I was going through your uh, CV and I was so excited to see that you have an interest in the intersection between evolutionary psychology and the law. This is yes. something that very few, whether it be professors of law or practicing lawyers would know of. Uh, it's something that I'm very well aware of because you know, my area of research is linking evolutionary psychology to, to everything, including to consumer behavior and behavioral decision making. So I'm very familiar, for example, with the Gruder Institute, with Owen Jones, who's a Vanderbilt professor. I don't know if you know, do you know Owen Jones? I know him very well because I was in the MacArthur Project on law and neuroscience. Okay, and so tell us about your interest. I know tell him us what well. that intersection is because it's fantastic. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I think the... Um, the insights that evolutionary 
science or psychology brings to law and to really any study of human behavior and human nature. I mean, it's so much bigger than law. Law is just kind of one portion of it, right? Um, are in some ways sounder than a lot of the extrapolation that I'm seeing from neuroscience to law because my years of experience in the MacArthur Project and then I also teach a course on law and neuroscience have made me very skeptical that neuroscience, you know, properly understood on the micro level or even, you know, on the brain imaging level um, or brain function level has a lot to teach us about, um, you know, how people behave or how we ought to structure the law or whatever. So I, I consider that a completely separate question from the insights of evolutionary psychology. And, you know, there I've always had an interest and I've always thought that evolution taught us something, although we have to be very careful because we're very complex creatures and culture is powerful. I mean, it really is quite powerful, even in drawing us away from our propensities, our inclinations, our impulses, right? To the point where we sometimes just completely run contrary to them. Uh, but there still remain areas where um, evolution really has something to teach us. So take, I'll give you an example. Um, I just gave a talk, one of the, my areas of interest is, uh, you know, family demographics. Uh, and family demographics is incredibly important to poverty, to deprivation, to disadvantage, uh, but also to the future of civilization. And one of the trends we're seeing is that men are avoiding college, withdrawing from higher education. Higher education has become feminized, which I think is a dire trend on multiple levels. Uh, but one of the ways in which it's become feminized is that there are more women than men in most universities, except at the very top, which have the pick of the litter, right? And what, what does that mean? I think it has uh, catastrophic consequences for women's happiness because women are hypergamous. They are stubbornly hypergamous. You know, gender may be constructed and gender preferences may be malleable, but that one has resisted all attempts to change and, it. And if I, forgive me for interrupting you, and the higher the status of a woman, the more she insists on a man who is of equal or higher status. So it's not a question of it's be, women desire status because they've been locked out of the, you know, the resource game. You, if you take Oprah, she will be even more insistent on a super high status guy, right? Right. Well, that, I mean, women just don't seem to think it's enough for them to be high status. They want a partner who's also high status, equal or higher status. But I think there's something else going on, which is the higher up you go, the harder it is to find someone who's equal or higher status. And, you know, that, that becomes a rare, rare avis. Uh, and now that men are withdrawing from higher education, it's even harder. I often tell people the future is feline. It's going to be a great era for cat ladies, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh oh, here's another controversial It'll comment. be great to be a cat. It will be great to be a cat. Uh, so, you know, how do we solve that kind of problem? Uh, we can try to manipulate women's preferences. They're very, very perdurable. I think the best way is 
to try to bring men back into higher education. Well, now Scott Yainer got into trouble by saying that at the National Conservatism Convention. He's now being investigated under Title IX. He's a professor at Boise State, who's affiliated with the Claremont Institute. He said, we need to stop pushing women into the professions, into STEM fields, into higher education, because they already numerically dominate, and we need to bring back more balance. You know, if we want strong families to form, if we want harmonious relationships to form, um, that strikes me as a more feasible way of doing it. Now, of course, why are men abandoning higher education? Why are men refusing to go to college? Uh, well, that's the other aspect of feminization. It's because the radical feminist ideology has infused all of higher education, right? Maleness is suspect. The patriarchy is evil. Uh, men's strengths, men's preferences, men's contributions, these are all suspect. These are all to be denigrated and purged. Uh, we have to bring, bring women's preferences to the fore. And I think a lot of the crisis of wokeism on campus is due to the abandonment of traditionally male perspectives and prerogatives which have fueled and dominated higher education and all intellectual endeavors for centuries, and I think rightly so. I wouldn't see them as male. I kind of see them as, as universal, but it's men that have devised them, propagated them, preserved them, right? Uh, these all have to go. Objectivity, logic, argument, evidence, all that stuff in favor of the feminine uh, values of care, of feelings, and then of course the vacuum that's created is filled by power, ironically enough. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing in higher education today, and it's, it's pernicious, it's terrible, it's, it's destructive. And the thing is the admission of women to colleges and graduate programs didn't have to end that way. Uh, we could have admitted women, um, which, you know, fairness requires that we uh, open channels of opportunity to women. Um, although I will say that, you know, the crusty old patriarchs of old, in being reluctant to do that, they were kind of on to something, unfortunately. Uh, but now we're, we have women uh, very present in higher ed. Uh, but that didn't have to entail adopting female priorities. And for people who say, oh, you know, it's false that men and women think differently about what's important and what's less important. Well, there's survey data, abundant survey data now, uh, that shows that if you ask women versus men, you know, elite educated women, what's more important, truth seeking, uh, advancing the frontiers of knowledge, um, innovating and creating new knowledge or being nice, you know, uh, cosseting people's emotional traumas, uh, you know, all of those kind of values of emotional well-being and care, they will two to one tell you it's the latter, not the former, whereas men give you the very opposite pattern. So that right? means- Are the free speech champions. Sure, so there a lot of stuff I wanna address. So number one, regarding your point about truth seeking versus uh, playing nice, I was told by a senior administrator at my university 
that despite, forgive the immodesty, all of my accomplishments, the fact that when I address someone on Twitter in a Twitter brawl by calling them imbecile, that negates all of my accomplishments. So the mere fact that I wasn't playing super diplomatic with someone who had repeatedly insulted me on Twitter and called them an imbecile, that is way more important than a 50-page academic CV. So that speaks to your point. Number it, it does. Number two. The person who insulted you. It. I'm going to turn down the heat because it's very noisy here. Just a second. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. Well. Right. So I mean, I'm not. I'm not a proponent of name calling at all, and I think if we should try to stay on the merits. But the very idea of staying on the merits is actually, uh, you know, disfavored. Yes. Uh, if the merits of the argument are unpleasant or unwelcome or make people feel undesired or, you know, so for example, any debate about group differences absolutely is forbidden, practically forbidden now. And I think there's been a real sea change in that uh, even over the past 15, 20 years uh, because someone might feel hurt or insulted or, you know, less good at something than someone else. And that's that's just totally unacceptable. But think about that taboo, the extent of that taboo. I mean, it extends into all the human sciences. It's, it's kind of a poison that invades all of social science, much of the hard sciences, certainly the biological sciences, human genetics, human developmental uh, studies. I, I mean, there, there's no field that isn't distorted by those, you know, priorities, which really don't belong in a university, in my humble opinion. I mean, there is a place for an ethic of care um, and concern about people's psychological well-being and all that sort of stuff, but it's not in a university. I'm sorry. That's right. a total perversion. So let me link back to evolutionary psychology and your discussion of feminism and then link it back to law. I want to say a few things. So, uh, any evolutionary psychologist understands that we are a sexually dimorphic species, which basically means right. that there are many things on which men and women are exactly similar to one another, but there are many things on which we would have necessitated sex-specific differences, whether it be in our traits, in our morphology, in our personalities, in our temperaments, in our preferences. So it is literally anti-science to presume that men and women should be indistinguishable in their preferences. So, so the same group of folks who from this side of their mouths talk about, talk about being pro-science will be the exact manifestations of those who are violating the most fundamental scientific edicts when it comes to the recognition that men and women do have sex-specific differences. So that itself is hallucinatory to me. Right. I mean, Jonathan Haidt sort of made that point that, you know, the, the left has these massive blind spots when it comes to science, and that's one of them. Yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of uh, the, the link between EP, uh, evolutionary psychology, and the law, uh, I think earlier today I sent you a, a clip. I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at it. In my first book ever, in chapter one, I have a whole section on Hammurabi's code, which I believe is a code that even predates the Mosaic code. And so I took specific codes from, from his Hammurabi code, and I demonstrated how they are perfectly aligned with basic evolutionary principles. For example, it might be related to paternity uncertainty or the thwarting of... And so 
to me, it seems incredible that you could study anything involving biological agents, whether it be uh, consumer behavior or the law, bereft of an understanding of our shared biological heritage. So what is it that has stopped legal scholars for so many centuries to develop, to erect their codes without an understanding of our evolved nature? Well, I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of things. First of all, the whole idea that there is a human nature that sets limits on what sorts of societies you can have or how society can be organized or what you can expect from people, from groups, from families and from men and women is uh, antithetical to uh, a certain postmodernist mindset, which I, I would trace back to Rousseau, but you know there are other thinkers who have adopted this point of view, which is that you know um, man is born free, and as a corollary, born with infinite possibilities, infinite possibilities for um, progress, for change, for crafting society and crafting the individual personality, right? And yet he is in chains. And what puts him in chains? Well, I mean, tradition, uh, the recognition of limits, uh, notions that there's human nature and there's a point beyond which we just can't fruitfully counter that human nature and the like. I mean, people want to believe that there are no limits, right? Uh, and they want to believe that we can socially engineer the perfect society. So a lot of it has to do with this kind of very American spirit of progressivism, of infinite improvement, which has its virtues, but you know, as George Will says, the essence of conservative thought is up to a point. Um, so <laughs> the, the virtues only go up to a point. Um, so now that this whole mindset has been adopted by the left, right? That any talk of human nature, any talk of, of genetically grounded differences, um, any talk of male-female differences, of group differences, um, this is unacceptable, uh, this is fascistic, um, this is backward uh, and, and reactionary, um, and it's just a cover for the oppressor and the people already privileged and in power to persecute people who have no power. So once again, it, it kind of comes back to these power politics. Um, and, you know, I, I find it very hard to understand because I don't really see it or feel it. Why, why women feel that uh, it's necessary to insist that men and women are the same and equal in everything? I mean, I was just saying to a friend the other day, I do not lose sleep over the fact that 20% of the Harvard Physics Department is men. I, I mean, why is this something that, you know, is a grievous insult or outrage to me? If, if I want to be a, phys a physicist and I have the talent and the ability and the interest, I, I don't see anybody stopping me. I see the channels of opportunity as open. And it's kind of ironic, and, and it doesn't matter how many women there are in a particular field or not, because individualism here should take over. Each of us should uh, go as far as we can based on its own merits, uh, on our own merits. And it's ironic, because going back to what Yuval Levin said to me about being a doctor, when I was an adolescent, and that was a while ago, uh, I was 
uh, late 60s. Um, and I was good in science and math. Nobody discouraged me, quite the opposite. People were constantly pushing me to go into those fields, encouraging me, urging me to go into those fields. Uh, but I recognized that, you know, I had other interests and I kind of had this inkling that eventually I probably wouldn't end up in those, in those fields. And this comports with David Lubinsky's work. I don't know if you know his work, but he has a series of papers. He's a um, professor, I think, at Vanderbilt. A series of papers where he looks at highly gifted pre-adolescents and adolescents, men and women. And what he shows is that net of cognitive ability, so setting aside the sort of Larry Summers question of whether men and women differ in cognitive ability, which you know, I think there is some evidence for, I know that's a heretical thought, um, but just controlling for that, uh, Lubinsky found that men and women with, with equal degrees of talent have very different preferences about the kind of life that they want to lead, the balance between work and family, uh, nurturing and, and care related values versus, you know, things, people versus things, uh, how, how much they want to work, how many hours they want to work, um, what their goals are. I mean, there are all sorts of parameters in which, in which men and women differ. And I don't understand why we don't accept those. Um, what's wrong with that? Can I offer some uh, possible explanations, which, sure. I, which I covered in my last book. So I, so in, in my book, in the parasitic mind, I argue that all of the idea pathogens postmodernism, militant feminism, social constructivism, cultural yeah, relativism, each of those idea pathogens shares one thing in common. They wish to free us from the pesky shackles of reality in order to pursue some noble goal, right? So in the, con in the, in the case, for example, of social constructivism, you know, empty, em the tabula rasa premise, every child can be the next Michael Jordan if only you hug them enough or don't hug them enough. That is a very hopeful message. It makes me feel good that my child has equal potentiality to every other child. Now it is perfectly rooted in bullshit, but my God, does it feel good. It just feels right. It, it liberates me from the shackles of reality. Therefore, each of the folks who promulgate these idea pathogens are consequentialists when it comes to the truth. They're not deontological, right? If I need to murder truth in the service of a higher noble goal, so be it. So that's what happens with militant feminists, I argue, right? They need to squash the sexist patriarchy, the status quo. And as long as we admit that there are you know, evolved sex differences between the two sexes, that hinders my ability to squash the patriarchy. Therefore, I will be a consequentialist. I will put on my hat of a consequentialist and I will strongly condemn anyone that's, who says that men and women might start with different biological imperatives. What do you think of that explanation? Well, I think I, 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 think I agree with that. I mean, I, I was talking before about, you know, the... Um, romance of social engineering and limitless possibilities. And I think what you're really doing is agreeing with me on this, um, that people are very attached to this idea that there are limited, limitless possibilities, that you can be anything you want to be, which, you know, you can be Mozart, you could be, I mean, people actually say these things. It's, it's, it's totally bizarre. 
And, and one of the paradoxes, well, there are a couple of things about it that's disturbing. One is when you deal with, you know, elite coastal populations, which, you know, I do because of where I've been and where I am, you recognize that they mouth this stuff, but on the ground, you know, they don't really believe it. When, they, when you ask them about their own kids, you know, can little Aiden, you know, be, be Mozart? I mean, they don't really, they don't think so. You know, they, they know, but he can't, right? They know that he's born with a certain personality and a certain nature, and they know the same thing about little Emma as well. Um, but, you know, when they get out of the realm of the personal into the theoretical, uh, they seem to forget all of these down-to-earth uh, insights and spout, you know, all this nonsense. Now, that would just be kind of a set of cute delusions, right? But the problem is, in the current era, um, this set of cute delusions has turned really nasty and really destructive, really on, on a number of levels. The first is, it has, it is in the process of destroying academia, really, and, uh, you know, a, a set of institutions which are the glory of Western civilization, if I may say so, which have taken hundreds of years to develop, um, have come out of these hard-won traditions of thought that banished, you know, superstition and irrationality and, you know, prejudice in the deep sense. I mean, not in the Burkean sense of, you know, these preferences that society needs to run, but benighted superstitions. It's taken us a very long time to get there. And now these people are trying to bomb us back from the first world to the third world, quite literally, in, in the way we think, just as they're trying to do that for society as a whole, quite frankly, uh, on many levels and in many spheres. But the second is, it is really interfering with relationships between men and women. Um, it is producing, I think, a tremendous amount of unhappiness, difficulty, uh, loneliness, disharmony uh, between men and women and making it just a lot harder for them to get along. Um, and there are many aspects to this. I mean, one of the aspects, one is the hostility that women are taught towards everything male the lack of appreciation of everything male. And I'll tell you, if you want to, you know, be censured, just try saying that men, you know, are the authors of civilization. J just try taking the Camille Paglia line, which is whether you like it or not. Oh, my, my picture just disappeared here. I'm sorry. I can um, see it. If you like it or not, uh, men, you know, have created science, technology, uh, finance, uh, democracy, uh, you know, at pretty much everything you can think of. And if you doubt that, then look at Charles Murray's book, Human Accomplishment, which is a book that's been virtually ignored. He was on my show very recently, Amy. Yeah, but that's one of his one of his books that's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody yeah. ever talks about it because it has these incredibly lopsided tables and charts about, you know, which cultures created modernity and which gender created modernity, right? So women are, are never allowed to admire and look up to men and what they've done. Uh, you're not allowed to praise Western civilization. You're not allowed to be proud of it. That's chauvinism. You know, if you look up chauvinism in the dictionary, excessive pride. I don't think that, you know, it, it's hard to be excessively proud 
of a set of traditions that pulled away from the rest and uh, generated all the good things uh, in life, or most of them. Obviously, we, we borrowed and took from other cultures, but for reasons that aren't completely understood, we pulled ahead. Uh, so the denigration, the systematic denigration of what we've achieved, I think is dangerous. Because if you're not grateful for and you don't appreciate what you have, you will not preserve, protect, and defend it. And if we don't preserve, protect, and defend it, we will lose it. Uh, yeah. And children will be worse off. You know, uh, as, as you probably know, because I think we're on a common email list, if, if nothing else, you probably heard that uh, a good friend of mine, Jordan Peterson, has recently retired. Yes. And I'm a few years younger than him. And I, I look, to be a professor is in my DNA, as I'm sure it is in yours. I could never imagine being anything else, but it's becoming so difficult to be a professor in the current ecosystem that even someone like me who would have never imagined uttering the following words, which is, you know what, I think I'm, I'm thinking of leaving, is something, is a thought that constantly, it's one of those recurring sort of OCD thoughts, those ruminative thoughts, because yeah. I am finding it terribly burdensome to be an academic these days. And so it's a tragedy, right? Because you have folks who, who are really committed to contributing to academia, who never mind guys like us who've been around for a while, but I get thousands of emails from people who are hoping to enter academia. And then they say, based on seeing the things that you've written, Professor Saad, and all the wokeness and so on, I'm looking for some another trajectory for my occupation. What a tragedy, Amy, no? No, that, I mean, that I think is a different thing. I mean, there are really two things going on here. One is those of us who are, you know, reaching more the end of our career. I mean, I'm pushing 70 and I did hope to stay on for much longer. Um, we, you know, every day think, oh my gosh, why do I put up with this? It is so awful, right? Uh, what's well, what are you? What, what, tell tell uh, us, what, what, why? Well, I have my reasons, I mean, <laughs> Several reasons. I mean, first of all, they've been trying to fire me for years, uh, and they're still trying. Um, I wouldn't give them the satisfaction, right? I no, no, no. Um, the second is, you know, I'm just a shtetl girl. I come from a barely middle class family, and for me to have worked so hard to be earning the money that I do and have the position that I have, and things like library privileges, which sounds silly. But it means a lot to me. I am not going to give that up without a fight. And this is just nuts and bolts. You know, I've, I've worked too hard to get where I am. Why would I give it up? But the third reason I, I stay, even though I'm treated like a pariah, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, treated really badly. Let, let me just say that. But I have a high tolerance for pain, um, is I am literally, and I am told this by my students, the only person left on my faculty that the students who are not with the Wokatariat program uh, can talk to and go to for advice. They do not trust any other professors, even though they pretend to, right? And I don't blame them for that. I don't blame them for trying to get along with their professors and, you know, uh, go with the, uh, be, be nice to them and pretend that they are trustworthy. Um, they are terrified of their fellow students, of the uh, lefty professors, and that's 
you know, 98% of them, uh, of the DIE establishment, this monstrosity, I mean, this hideous monstrosity, the diversity, inclusion, and equity bureaucracy, which that is filled with, with mediocrities, you know, people who don't care about truth-seeking, don't care about academic values, couldn't be scholars if their life depended on it, you know, are just kind of time-serving true believer bureaucrats. Right. Um, it's welfare for the, you know, for the barely educated upper middle class. Really, that is what DIE is, okay? But this, they're always looking for something to do. They're always looking for some crisis or some evidence of discrimination or racism or something. I mean, my case at Penn, my awfulness, the terrible things I've said, they're like pigs in shit. I am sure that they're having meeting after meeting. They drink tons of coffee. They might even bring some Danish in from a local emporium. I don't know. Uh, you know, what should we do about Amy Wax? They're busy. It keeps them busy. I mean, I, I don't know. So I, I feel like I would be abandoning my students the ones you know who take my conservative thought class, the ones who are not with the program, the ones in the Federalist Society, and I'm just you know not going to do that, uh, and that's why I stay. Now the other problem you alluded to, and one that that grieves me greatly because I have a son who's actually a PhD candidate uh, in economics, and I, I think would dearly love to be in academia, and he's very very bright and deserves to be. Um, he has a lot of friends from college who are in PhD programs of various kinds, very brilliant, mostly guys, uh, in government, in social science, um, in STEM fields, uh, who are all in the same boat, right? They're all looking at, and many of them are right of center, secretly so. Right. I think um, many of them have probably written me emails. Yeah, they've, they've written you, they've written me. Uh, and they are going to be really screwed, all right? They are going to be shut out. And the law, Jordan Peterson alludes to this. He alludes to it in STEM, but I think it's true in social science. I think it's true in history. I think it's true in a whole variety of fields. These are the best and the brightest, and these are the people who will be prolific because we know that male scholars are more prolific than women and, you know, write the big books and all of this sort of thing. Uh, and are these people even ever going to get hired? Are they ever going to get positions? We are going to lose a whole generation of first-rate scholars, and I feel horribly sorry for these people. If they want to go into academia, they have to pay, play let's pretend with this whole fealty to the DIE gods, the diversity, inclusion, and equity gods, right? Or they don't have a snowball's chance in hell of surviving and getting tenure. And even when you get tenure, because I have tenure, uh, there are a million little and big ways that they can make life miserable for you if you step out of line and say things that are unapproved. So, you know, I don't know what to do about that. I really don't, uh, but it is, it is a, a terrible shame. Now, I did uh, have dinner with a, a famous person who will go nameless. Um, who's, and I asked him, I said, don't the upper middle class white people, 
and Asians also, don't they realize that this is just really bad for their children and especially their sons? That they're, you know, this is gonna, this woke ideology, which is everywhere, is going to hurt their own kids. Do they not care? Uh, and we had no, I mean, I had no answer to that. Um, he seemed to think the thing that would hurt the Democrats the most in the coming elections is the crime surge, the, the wildly out of control crime surge. Um, but actually, I think, I don't think so, because if you look at Charles Murray's Coming Apart, what you learn, and that's a magisterial book, is that, you know, upper middle class whites have kind of segregated themselves, barricaded themselves uh, in these um, whiteopian neighborhoods. They're totally geographically isolated and protected. They're culturally protected, institutionally, but they live a, a separate life from, you know, the rank and file, uh, the unwashed masses, um, and they're fine with that. But I think it's all going to come crashing down um, when they realize that the universities um, have just, in some ways, turned against them. Yeah, I, I I hear you. Uh, speaking of when you mentioned earlier that the uh, Penn has been trying to fire you, I thought we would spend a few minutes drilling down some of the quote controversial comments. So let me kind of summarize them, and then you'll come in and you know clean up anything that I might have gotten wrong. Uh, so I, I I I took note of three cases. One where you were pointing to the fact that uh, just in terms of the the the, the great distribution facts, you were arguing that black students were less likely in, in your law classes to score in the top uh, quartile of students. That was one statement that got you into trouble. A second one related to the fact that when Asian immigrants come, they tend to uh, vote for uh, Democrats. And so maybe we need to curtail Asian immigration. Uh, and then the third one was uh, the one that I think is the least quote controversial. Uh, is, is when you basically argue that not all cultures uh, are equal. Now, before I ask you to weigh in on these three statements, uh, let me just mention one or two points. I think perhaps the third statement is the one that many people would find less controversial because it is a state, or may, maybe I'm wrong, but at least for me, it would be less controversial. <laughs> pragmatically speaking, just let me make the point and then you can uh, have at it. Because pragmatically speaking, you're not identifying anyone yet making a profound point. All cultures are not equal. And that is as clear as the existence of gravity or the sun. I've made that point 13 million times and I never got into trouble. I probably say things that are a lot more controversial than anything you've ever said. And I don't get into trouble. Now, it could be because of my intoxicating good looks, but it could also be because by me pragmatically not pointing to a particular group, not because I'm afraid to do so, but because I could make the argument in the abstract, it allows me to then have kind of an austere position or a veneer, a truth, true veneer of objectivity. So do you think that maybe that's what got you into hot water, the fact that you are pointing to specific groups, even though epidemiologically speaking, that statement might be true, the fact that you point to the group rather than speak in the abstract causes to tr people to trigger their ire. Does that make sense? 
Well, I mean, let me just say a few things. Let's start with that observation. I think there really is something to that observation and that I tend to be blunt and I tend to be concrete and specific. I actually am very mistrustful of abstractions. And I think one of the generic uh, frustrations of, you know, the whole conservative movement in the United States, and if you read, you know, the Claremont Review books, if you read their outlets, you know, there's a lot of highfalutin abstract talk um, they never sort of get down and dirty because they don't want to get down and dirty. And when it comes to race, they're terrified. All right. I mean, they just, one of, one of their real Achilles heels on racism, on structural racism is they're not willing to say, you know, no, groups have different levels of ability, demonstrated ability, different competencies that they, you know, you just don't say that. And, and even conservatives are afraid to say that and point to particular groups, particular data. I mean, sort of like Charles Murray does in Facing Reality, which I'm actually at the moment uh, reviewing, about to publish a review of, and he does get down and dirty, but then at the end, in his last chapter, he kind of pulls back. And he never says what I think he needs to say, which is, and now, given the realities of different rates of crime, different uh, average IQs, uh, people have to accept, without apology, that blacks are not going to be evenly distributed through all occupations. They're just not. And that's not a problem. That's not due to racism. That's due to these differences, which, although we don't completely understand them, we've tried for ages to change them and we haven't succeeded. But, you know, who's willing to say that? So that's the kind of thing that gets you in trouble. But let me just say that the first two that you cited you know, there was kind of a media storm about them, but one frustrating aspect is that they were taken completely out of context. What the media does is it, it hones in on these sound bites, you know, just yanks them from the, the more broader, more nuanced discussion, and then just propagates them like tea table gossip, you know, to the point where people don't even know the source of it or what you actually said or what you were actually arguing or anything like that. They're just out there to, to lynch you, basically. They, they just get a thrill out of it. And I think that's partly what's going on. Um, the blacks, you know, tend to uh, not be well represented at the top of the class. Gad, you know, anybody who teaches law school knows this to be true, okay? Richard Sander at UCLA documented this 20 years ago when he got his hands on a database. I mean, I want you to find a law professor who can honestly, you know, of course, you'll find people who lie, uh, look you in the eye and say, in my law school, top law school, which of course practices heavy affirmative action, blacks are evenly distributed throughout the class, top, middle, and bottom because it just ain't so. I have a friend who recently told me a funny anecdote. He's a law professor who, of course, will go nameless. Um, and he dated a woman who said, oh, they started talking about Penn for some reason. He's not a Penn professor. And he said, Penn's a, she said, Penn's a great school, but it has this crazy professor, Amy Wax, who dared to say that blacks do less well in law school than other people. And he looked at her and he said, but what she said is absolutely true. I mean, this was their last date. Uh, they, <laughs> he said, but, but what she said is not false. 
and everybody knows that. And this guy is like not a radical. Okay. So it's just duplicity in its purest form. Right? And of course, they won't release the data. They won't get an independent auditor to actually look at it. They just say I'm lying, but you know, I'm not. So what do you, what do you think? So let, me, let me give you a, a story, a personal story that speaks to some of these uh, group differences. Uh, now we can, one can debate. And by, by the way, when I was asking you originally the question, I was playing devil's advocate. It's not at all that. Oh, I it's fine. I've, yeah. I've no problem. Uh, because believe me, I, 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 I say every possible uncomfortable truth that, that is imaginable. Try, try saying something against Islam and see how that works out. So well, it's, right. it, it's not my colleagues that come after me. I get death threats. So I, I understand it. Uh, when it comes to truth, you have to be deontological. And so I certainly admire you for that. Do you, th so let me first tell you that my, my personal story, and then we can tease out whether it's due to something endemic to the culture or something more uh, uh, dispositional to each, to the individual, to the race. So when I was, when I finished, uh, so I did an undergrad in math and computer science, then I did an MBA. Then eventually I went on and did my MS and PhD at Cornell. But after my MBA, one of my brothers who at the time lived in Southern California was really keen on having me work with him for a few years before I went on for my other degrees. I always knew that I wanted to be in academia, but he was keen on sort of having me put on the proverbial suit, getting some experience, hanging out with him, working with him. And so he was trying to convince me to take a break before I would go on for my PhD. And so I humored him and listened to his arguments, although it, it, it was never going to be that I wasn't going to pursue my PhD. When my mother caught wind of the fact that my brother was trying to potentially convince me to put my PhD on hold, and I returned to Montreal, I had visited him in Southern California, she took me to a side room, uh, you know, as if she's about to tell me this deep, dark secret and said, you know, God, I, I heard that David is trying to convince you not to do your PhD. Do you want for people to know you as someone who dropped out of school. So my mother thought that we're, we're Lebanese Jews, in, in case you didn't know. So the, the level of excellence that is expected is such that if I had dropped, dropped out, put on hold after an MBA with a bachelor's in mathematics and computer science at a leading global university, that would bring shame to the family because I would be a dropout, right? Now, of course, I didn't pursue my PhD to please my mother, but it gives you a sense of the culture that is embedded, inculcated within you in terms of what is expected of you to be a successful member of society. So do you think that what might drive some of these cultural differences that you speak of, these types of uh, dynamics, or do you think there is something endemic to the races in the same way that some races are taller than others that might result in these uh, outcome-based realities? Well, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I, I am not a human geneticist and I don't play one on TV. Now I do follow the literature because I'm quite curious about it. You know, it's a scientific literature that's quite fascinating. So I think I'm pretty well informed in it. Um, I think I'm pretty well informed in psychometrics. I've been to the ISIR meetings, International Society for Intelligence Research. Um, I know people in the field. Um, you know, I have to, I always told people that I think the data on, you know, nature versus nurture and the, and the degree to which each influences these, these patterns is inconclusive. And I think it is inconclusive, absolutely. Now that in itself is heresy, right? Because Anybody who thinks it might be possible that there's an innate contribution 
to these group differences is a Nazi. evil per is a Nazi. Yes, thank you. Uh, is a Nazi and should be drummed out of polite society. Well, should certainly be drummed out of academia, um, but you know, further polite society. But frankly, you know, there's a sort of secret society of psychometricians who agree with me, and even think that the evidence is, you know, starting to get pretty strong, that there is an innate contribution. Um, I will. So let's talk about something a little less. Uh, incendiary than race, uh, which is Ashkenazi Jews, yeah. right? Now, if you honestly believe that the, you know, 15 or 12 point higher average Ashkenazi Jewish IQ is totally cultural, I have a bridge that I can sell you, all right? I just, it, it just defies the evidence. As a Mizrahi Jew, I feel so, marginalized by your comment. Why? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not in the weeds on Ashkenazi versus, you know, Sephardic and all of this, but I do know people like Razi Khan and, and others have yes. looked at the founding mothers, the bottlenecks, the genetic closeness of Ashkenazi Jews. I mean, they are incredibly genetically uniform. Of course, now we're diluting our brand like crazy because we're intermarrying and don't go to medical school anymore. They, they make films. I don't know what they're doing. I honestly don't. Um, but uh, things are not what they used to be, which shows you that culture is powerful, right. right? So now Jews are diluting their brand. They're in eclipse. They're they've kind of lost the mojo and all of this. And yet, you know, when I think of past, my past students, oh boy, there were, there were some very smart Jews there, let me tell you. Uh, but that's not systematic in any way. So, you know, but I don't like lose sleep at night over the fact that there might be an innate component to this stuff. I mean, I don't lose sleep over the fact that there's an innate component between men and women either. Uh, but for some reason, people just get incredibly outraged and exercised at the very possibility. And you can see why, because, you know, <laughs> well, when it comes to Ashkenazi Jews, they have used the meritocracy very much to their advantage. And they are very present in all of the opinion shaping institutions and roles. And, you know, frankly, they haven't always used that influence to good, in my opinion. Um, so there's an upside and a downside to, to some of this, right? And then, you know, Asians have about a five or six point advantage on whites. We don't know what the source of that is, uh, how much is culture, how much is um, genetics. Um, but I will tell you this, there is such suspiciousness now directed at uh, these human genetic population studies, these GWAS studies, especially in sensitive areas like, you know, behavior, uh, cognitive ability, certain personality traits like discount rate and executive function that matter to performance, um, that I think it's going to be very hard to sort this stuff out and do this research. Well, what, what's amazing to me is that 
progressive, what I call progressive epistemology, contrary to say the scientific method, progressive epistemology judges the veracity of a scientific finding based on whether it adheres to the orthodoxy, to political correctness right. or not, right? So if I do a, a study on sex differences that show that women come out superior, whatever that means, on some a memory location task, uh, which women have been repeatedly shown to, to do, to perform better than men, well, then I'm hailed, oh, congratulations, Dr. Saad, what a brilliant scientist you are. If I were to show data that shows that all other things equal, men are much more likely to seek sexual variety seeking, boo, boo, Nazi, what a Nazi, what a quack pseudoscientist. So therefore, my scientific uh, robustness is not determined by whether I follow the tenets of the scientific method or I have methodological rigor, it's whether my results came out in line with the proper expected orthodoxy or not. Nothing could be more dangerous to truth-seeking than to adopt such a progressive epistemology. I mean, it's the death of truth if you do that. Right. And here's the thing. I mean, you know, the notion that men seek more sexual variety than women is just, you know, the hoariest insight that ever existed uh, and continues to be true. Um, but it's now spread like kudzu to every corner of the human sciences. I mean, bias research, gender research, developmental research, anything having to do with disadvantage. I mean, every single area is now tainted by this imperative to get the right results. And I had a friend uh, who's a distinguished um, behavioral geneticist tell me, this was a couple of years ago, uh, that she, if she found a result that you know showed something that was against the orthodoxy for group differences, she wouldn't publish it. She wouldn't let it see the light of day. And I said to her, well, why are you in this field then? I mean, why don't you like quit and become a stockbroker or something? Well, and I, it's fraudulent, right? I mean, what I, she's doing is fraudulent, right? Well, it's scary, yeah. It, it distorts and, and, you know, it distorts and twists uh, these areas, and they're all now politicized. Um, they're all um, messed up. You have to be within the Overton window. I mean, I could give you a million examples. I, I just saw a study the other day about bias and the way that people, you know, regard black versus white team members, and you know, they're biased. Well. You know, they come with presumptions that are based on valid differences that they observe in groups. That's the other thing is people are willfully refusing to recognize that there is a difference between statistical patterns and, you know, how we regard and treat individuals. Right. I mean, there, we should have totally different attitudes towards the two, right? And we need to keep that straight but unfortunately, everything is taken personally, right? Anything about overall patterns that's adverse or insulting is taken as a personal insult and therefore it's banned. So I just think all the human sciences are contaminated. And, you know, when I talk to young people, I just talked to a young uh, PhD candidate and I said, it must be really difficult operating in your field. Yeah. Um, because you always have to be looking over your shoulder, worrying that um, your findings will uh, not be the approved findings. And I just don't understand. So it means that they stay away from certain areas. Um, they stay away from certain databases.
uh, it just becomes more and more constricted. Do you do you hold on? I have a couple of more questions for you, and then uh, I've taken enough yeah. of your time. I could keep you here for another three hours. Uh, do you hold out any hope? Do you, are you optimistic that these idea pathogens can eventually be eradicated and we can return to reason, or uh, or is the ship been irrevocably damaged? It has hit the iceberg and it's going down. <laughs> well, I mean, here's one cause for optimism, and then I'll tell you my cause for pessimism. Um, one cause for optimism is that intellectual life, real intellectual life, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, you know, the exploration of maybe very unwelcome ideas has gone, is now moving outside the university. And I think the internet, you know, for all of its drawbacks, uh, has been a great boon in this regard because there are these communities of people who either have not been allowed to enter academia, have been ejected from academia, who are very well educated, who are very thoughtful, mostly male, right? Um, who are really, uh, they're in think tanks or they're um, at publications or they're on Substack or, you know, wherever they are, where they form these sort of groups, conversational groups, um, and they continue to exist because it still is a free country in that sense, and the university can't control absolutely everything. Now, having said that, you know, the universities are powerful. They are rich. They are, people keep throwing money at them, which just drives me berserk, right? You can have these incredibly conservative Princeton alumni but they're still giving money to Princeton. I say to them, what are you doing? Do you have any idea the cesspool that you are contributing to? But, you know, I make a joke about their little granddaughter, Caitlin. You know, if little Caitlin wants to go to Princeton and little Caitlin gets into Princeton, that's all they care about. Because getting into Princeton and getting out of Princeton is the avenue to the good life. It's the gateway to the upper middle class. Right? And it's become more and more important to be in the upper middle class so you can be protected from the hordes and the chaos and the rest of society. And these people, although they're conservative in their views, they just choose to ignore what Caitlin is learning at Princeton, which is that their grandfather is some hideous patriarchal evil capitalist or whatever the heck he is. So, you know, the universities uh, are doing remarkably well. Now, the second reason I'm pessimistic is because I have seen my students change over even like 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I've been in academia almost 30 years now and I got a very late start. Um, and they have become these cowed, benighted sheeples. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So not only are they, you know, thoroughly intimidated as they should be, but they are ignorant. They know nothing. So I'll give you one concrete example. I could give you many. Um, I teach this conservatism course. One of our sessions or a couple of our sessions are about race, about disadvantage and, and all of those good stuff and the conservative take on that. And these kids have gone to top colleges and they've spent four years hearing about racism, 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 poverty, bigotry, oppression, you know, that's all they hear about. And I asked them, have you ever heard of the Moynihan Report? Have you ever heard of Daniel Patrick Moynihan? 
you know, so the Moynihan Report is this really important big report that came out in the mid-60s, I think it was like 65 or something, in which Moynihan said what's happening in the black family is a, a catastrophe. It is going to have terrible effects. It has terrible effects now. It's going to have terrible effects down the road. Uh, a, a community in which the men check out, right, don't marry, don't support families, don't raise their kids, asks for and gets chaos. That is what he said, right? And there was a firestorm. They never heard of it. They never heard of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. They, you know, were born yesterday. I mean, Larry Elder says this this point every single day on his radio show. Thomas Sowell has said it a million times. They're both black gentlemen, so it doesn't need to be reserved to uh, Moynihan, right? Yeah, no. I mean, there are a million examples of people that they never heard of. Yeah, I mean, they know nothing. <laughs> they know nothing about conservative thought, conservative ideas, except for a few who are curious and they've right. kind of sought it out almost like on their own, right? Um, so never heard of all the mid-century, uh, you know, famous conservatives, William F., not even William F. Buckley, Wilmore Kendall, Richard Weaver, James Burnham. Uh, that, that's just not on their map at all. Those ideas are verboten. Even law students, right? You ask them, have you really read anything on originalism, on textualism, on the alternatives to living constitutionalism? which of course their con law courses are a cheering section right. or the latest fad uh, and, and no other approach, no other philosophy is really seriously presented. So as a result, when we do a session on it, I'm, I'm writing on a bank blank slate right. pretty much. So this happens over and over and over again. The syllabus, the curriculum, it's been purged. It's been massaged. It's been propagandized. Um, and that is, you know, it, that's always been the case to some extent. But I mean, when I was at college in, in the early 70s, I, I, I was at Yale. I was in one of the first class of women. I mean, it was a different world, let me tell you. But so uh, pragmatically, that is likely due to the fact that if you do studies looking at the political affiliation of the professoriate, then you have gigantic uh, lopsided ratios, right? So in most of the, quote, activist fields, sociology and blank studies and so on, you know, you have ratios of 44 to 1, 130 to 1, if not zero, uh, meaning a ratio of Democrats to Republicans. Now, in some disciplines right. where you can adjudicate truth using the scientific method, then there is nothing to discuss. The theory of evolution is vertical and, and that's it. On the other hand, when it comes to the debating whether uh, the pros and cons of the death penalty, there are very valid arguments on both sides of the aisle. But if the students are only exposed to the possibility that one set of arguments exist, that's why they end up as know-nothings as per your term, right? Because you don't even know of the existence of all of these valuable other comments stemming from this other invisible group. So could it be that, I mean, is there a way for us to institutionalized a greater ideological diversity within how we hire professors or would that be contrary to a libertarian ethos well i think the main obstacle well first of all i think you're absolutely right that the lopsided professoriate is a lot of it although frankly you know a, a so-called liberal professor left that when people's politics didn't in the past affect 
their feeling of obligation to present arguments and points of view uh, across the spectrum. And that happened. I mean, there wasn't this contamination by people's ideology. But the problem, I think, is a very pragmatic one, which is that the university brass, you know, the administration, which is massive of our great universities, plus the professoriate, they are the gatekeepers to who gets hired. Right. Uh, that, that they are the arbiters. And, you know, they have it within their power to purge the universities of anybody who's right-leaning and prevent anyone from entering. And they are doing it. Harvey Mansfield just, get, with, without apology, Harvey Mansfield just gave an interview on the website Persuasion uh, with Yasha Monk, you know, who I don't entirely trust. Uh, but Harvey Mansfield said, um, do you know that Harvard hasn't hired a conservative uh, in any department, as far as I know, in 15 years, 20 years? And he said, he called that crazy. He said, that's crazy. And here's the other thing, Gad, my, my husband's a med school professor. There is no more woke, contaminated field today, all right, than medicine and public health. Incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. And no dissent allowed. I mean, zero, especially since in medical schools, these elite medical schools, ironically, most people don't have tenure. Right. You know, I mean, there are people who dependent on grants. They're dependent on short-term contracts. They have to earn their own way, and they don't dare say a thing. And there are elite departments, uh, let's say oncology, which is a field I know because my relatives are in it, uh, where half or more of the fellows are doing projects in equity, not curing cancer, not cancer biology, not cancer treatment. I mean, Gad, people still die of cancer. That is like really like they die as non-racist. The Titanic. But they, they die as non-racist. That's the most important part. Well, right. I mean, we still have a heavy lift to develop better treatments for cancer. And you know, little differences in, in on the margin between groups, if most people are still doing poorly and dying, like who cares? Um, but it's a complete inversion of where the priorities should be. And here's the thing, part of the reason for it, it's easier. Yeah. It's easier to be, you know, a, a faux sociologist in medicine than to get in there and do the tough, hard, you know, high failure rate work of testing new drugs, coming up with new therapies, you know, getting in the lab and doing basic cancer biology. I mean, that requires a lot of time, a lot of work, and a lot of brain power. Um, and as medicine has become feminized, right, uh, those priorities have gone by the board. It's amazing. Because it's too hard. Let me ask you uh, one one last question, then we could say goodbye offline. Uh, yeah. So you're you're clearly someone who you know, doesn't mince words, you're direct speaker, something that I admire. You are what I call a honey badger. That's a that's a title that you could put on your CV. It's a big accolade to get the honey badger appellation from Dr. Saad. Uh, is there a way that we can, and I'm being serious, I'm not being facetious. Is there a way to bottle honey badgerism? Or is that something that is a unique combination of your genes that defines you? In other words, 
Gadsad was born with the set of genes that makes him irreverent to the orthodoxy and he fights. Amy Wax, or is there something that we can teach people, seminar one, two, three, here's the recipe, that not necessarily will make them natural honey badgers, but at least will move them from the invertebrate, castrated cowards that they are to actually finding a spine to find their voice. Yeah. Can we do that? Or we just have to look for the natural honey badgers and ride them all the way to, to the courage yeah. mountain? Well, I think the answer is both, you know? I mean, I think some people uh, are more prone to this behavior. I mean, of, of the big five personality traits, one of them is agreeableness. And, uh, you know, women are more agreeable than men on average. Well, you know, my husband said, agreeableness, you get a zero. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I am not a naturally agreeable person. Um, but, you know, so there are people who are born more unagreeable than others. Esper, sorry to interrupt you. Esper, when I first reached out to you, you said, I don't do Skype. That's it, period. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't. I'm also very uh, um, a Luddite when it comes to technology, so I don't have a smartphone. I mean, I really, the more people tell me I need a smartphone, the more determined I am not to get a smartphone. I mean, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that. But part of it, I'm trying to clear that space of that place of silence in your own mind where you get to think right? Well, you get even to think for yourself and think in a way that's a little more sophisticated than this buzz would encourage you. And, and that's all I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to clear that place. And, you know, I think more people should do that, but get, you know, get away from the distraction. But, you know, so there are people who are born with that natural propensity uh, and we have to, you know, love those people and make sure that, you know, we, we don't, punish them and penalize them, which is what we're doing. Uh, but I definitely, we can foster that. I mean, there's no question. What, and, how do you do that? Just by- Well, first of all, by going back to sort of basic academic commitments and values of a free society, right? Of free thinking, the basic stuff, which, you know, used to uh, have sway and influence uh, but but a generation ago, take the ACLU, right? The ACLU has just abandoned its entire mission. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad said at the dinner table, you know, we're Jews. I'm proud to be in a country where the Nazis can march through Skokie. Right. And who says that anymore? Right. And what we're not doing is we're not inculcating, and, and there is a role for inculcation right? There is a role for uh, um, fostering a, a particular set of attitudes. Certainly when kids are younger, then eventually they are going to more think for themselves. But we have to expose them to this love of liberty, right? Liberty that beats in your breast, this suspiciousness towards arbitrary concentrations of authority and tyranny is very Anglo-centric. That's our tradition, right? right? That, that is our American tradition. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, those fealties, it, it, it's partly feeling, it's partly inspiration, and it's partly intellectual um, to admire and love what our civilization has accomplished in terms of the enlightenment values that have brought us so far. 
uh, the tolerance for dissent, the even grudging tolerance for people who don't agree with us, which has been virtually completely lost, right, in this kind of miasma of, of woke priorities um, and the turn against absolutism and free speech. You know, this is all very tendentious talk. Uh, we need to foster that in young people. And we're not doing that, right? Uh, and we're doing quite the opposite. So I think you can take it fairly far with that. That's the way I was brought up, right. by the way. Uh, and maybe, you know, probably you were brought up because yeah. we're probably not that different in age. Um, and where did it go? I mean, it vanished. And until we bring back um, that love of liberty, that Whiggish suspiciousness towards, you know, arbitrary authority and tyranny, we will not make any progress. And, you know, that doesn't mean you don't also value tradition. It's a balance. It's a very sophisticated balance, actually, to respect the past, which, of course, the past has brought us much of this, um, to embrace self-improvement and progressivism up to a point, because that's the American way, but not unrealistic, you know, wild-eyed social engineering that seeks to just totally transform human nature and, you know, just purge every element uh, of fealty to, to family, to, to tradition, to older ways of doing things, to stability, to sameness, to familiarity. You know, all of the stuff that's now been denigrated. Um, I'm not sure why that all went away among elites. It didn't, it doesn't among the rest of the population. The rest of the population retained some of it, but they feel very disempowered. They feel very, very powerless, um, which is partly why, you know, people went for Trump, I think. Right. Well, I, I was just going to add that, uh, I mean, to end it on a hope, on a message of hope, I think that the silent majority uh, despises a lot of the, the woke pathogens uh, as, as per the number that write to me, but then say at the end of the email, please don't mention my name if you oh, right. right. So I think that if there's a way for us to, uh, you know, uh, ignite the, the courage in people to not diffuse the responsibility for a few to speak on everyone's behalf, I think we'll be able to redress the ship pretty quickly. I mean, it's, it seems dire, but the reality is that the numbers are truly in our favor. Most people don't like the stuff. I think the blue-haired people are very committed ideologically. So, so people overestimate the number of people who are holding the rest of us hostage. But the reality yes, is- They have power. They, they have, have power, exactly. Tremendous power out of oh. proportion to their numbers. And they are not about to let it go. In fact, they are doubling and tripling down on it. And I mean, you know, my case is on some level not about me because it's just, I'm just roadkill. I'm a casualty, you know, in the culture wars. Um, but I, I, what I see being said and done with respect to me is truly alarming. I mean, it is a total repudiation of the very concept of academic freedom. Yeah. Uh, is happening. I am being, here's what my case boils down to. We, we don't approve of her opinions and positions. 
therefore she has to be punished. Yep. That's it. That's that's all you need to say about it. I mean, and the rest of it is just woke a babble. You know, I it, it's bullshit. Um, you know, once that happens, that that is a that is an alarming development. I hear you. Well, Dr. Wax, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye officially offline. Guys, if you appreciate this show and all the all the conversations that I have, please consider supporting the show in any way that you can. Thank you so much, Amy. True pleasure to meet you. Sure. sure.